Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. <laughs> Hey, you guys, I have an assignment for you. I want you to do this tonight or like tomorrow night soon. Okay. So, so we're producing a new stinger logo for the end of the show. You know, that thing where the lady says stitcher, you know, this thing. Stitcher. All right. So here's what we need you to do. We want you to play this clip for your kid. Here it is again. Stitcher. Then record a voice memo of them singing it back to you. Tell them to have fun. Like they can sing the melody, the rhythm. They can shout Stitcher. They can whisper it. They can make silly noises, whatever they want. Then email us the file at hello at longestshortesttime.com with the subject Stitcher. We've gotten a couple of these already and they are ridiculously cute, but we need more. Also, we put fun call outs like this all the time on social media. So make sure that you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so that you never miss the chance to be a part of our next project. And thanks. When Nicholas Day became a dad eight years ago, there's this one thing that totally freaked him out, a thing he did not expect. I had this feeling about pacifiers that I couldn't explain, um, which is that like I really hated them. Nick could not figure out where this pacifier hatred was coming from, but it was deep, primal. One day, the baby was screaming, and Nick's wife was like, come on, let's at least try this. She asked him to go to the store for a pacifier, and Nick went and sort of froze in the aisle, came home empty-handed. He just had this feeling. This feeling that I wasn't a good enough father if my child was sucking a pacifier, that I'd failed somehow, and that the pacifier was this uh, public signal that I had failed. Um, all of which feels absurd to just, I, I hear myself saying those words, and I feel crazy. If you've got a kid, you know what this is like, right? There's some thing, some parenting choice, where you feel like if you choose wrong, you're going to screw up your kid forever. Maybe it's co-sleeping or using formula or going back to work or not going back to work. And it's no wonder we worry. There's always someone ready to judge you, to confirm your fears that you are doing it wrong. And sometimes I think, maybe you think this too, that, that this confusion and anxiety and, and, and judginess over what is right and wrong for your baby is a modern problem because of the internet or parenting books or whatever. 
Well, it turns out people have been super opinionated and anxious about their infants for ages. There's actually a book about it. And it, it turns out some 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 total jerk wrote it. <laughs> yeah, it's Nick. He's the jerk who wrote it. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Now, Nick's a journalist, and he knows how to research things when he wants answers. So he went digging for an answer to where his pacifier paranoia came from, if it had any merit. And Nick did find the answer to that question, which we'll get to. But he also uncovered this whole strange history, centuries of child-rearing practices that people really believed in and today are just mind-boggling. Things like animal brains, bizarre anti-thumb-sucking contraptions, philosophers like Rousseau and John Locke make an appearance. Turns out, parents of the past have put their infants through some crazy stuff. They had to survive being stepped on by goats. Like, just for example... Nicholas Day's book is called Baby Meets World, and today he's going to walk us through the bizarre, fascinating, and strangely relatable history of parenting babies. Now to start off, I want to go way back, like way, way back, because one of the first things that Nick discovered is that parenting anxiety is actually as old as parenting. Part of what made us human to begin with was we had these really big, powerful brains, big enough that we had to give birth before they were fully developed. In the first few years of life, human brains actually quadruple in size, which means our babies come out kind of dumb. Infants became sort of helpless to take care of themselves. Um, I mean, primates and, and, and humans are unusual because they're exceptionally helpless shortly after birth. But a lot of primates can at least grasp on to their mothers, whereas the early humans discovered they had to be carrying this infant all the time. Our babies couldn't grasp us, in part because we weren't furry anymore. Prehistoric moms would head out to their jobs, foraging for food. And all the while, they had to be carrying their infants, which, as we all know, makes the workday much less efficient. And so all of a sudden you have this mother who has to figure out what to do with this helpless creature that suddenly was no longer capable of taking care of itself. And there you have it, history's first work-life balance issue. Now, breastfeeding is one of those things that we think of as being, quote, natural, right? Like, Like it should be instinctive for both mom and baby. Right. And, you know, for almost all other mammals... Nursing is this wholly instinctive act. But for primates, it's not. We're pretty unlucky. And in zoos, gorillas and other primates often have a lot of trouble figuring out how to breastfeed. I think there's observations of gorillas putting their babies backwards to their breast. Like that's how far um, they are from knowing what they have to do. These struggles with things like breastfeeding and work, they come up over and over again throughout history. And one of the ways that women have gotten around it up until pretty recently is by paying other women to breastfeed their babies. It's called wet nursing. Now, I'd heard about wet nursing, but I just sort of always imagined it was only wealthy women doing it, like hiring some poor girl from the village or something. But Nick writes that actually in 1780, three quarters of the infants born in Paris were sent out to the country to be wet nursed. And for this reason, Paris became known as the city without babies. 
Paris is probably the most extreme example in history, and it's really remarkable. Um, you have a city where it's just completely routine for newborns to be sent out to the countryside to be wet nursed. It was really hard to make a living, and labor was really valuable. And if you were nursing, it was a huge amount of time, as any woman knows. And all of a sudden, it's not just the wealthy women hiring wet nurses. It's uh, the shopkeepers, the artisans. So they were like, they, they were struggling with going to a job and nursing just like women of today. And they would send their babies how far away to the countryside? So I don't know exactly how far away in the countryside they were. Um, but it was far enough that they certainly didn't go see them regularly. Uh-huh. Um, the whole point of wet nursing was that the baby was out of the city until uh, he or she was more capable or until the baby was less of a drain on the family. There's a whole bureaucracy set up to deal with it. Um, it's not a very good bureaucracy. Sometimes infants are sent out to wet nurses and they're lost. Um, the, they, don't, they don't have the information about who this baby belongs to. What were the lives of the wet nurses like? They, they had their own children, right? Yeah, the the story of wet nurses is really tragic. Um, there was this idea that old milk was bad. Only a mother who'd given birth relatively recently who had, quote, new milk. Only that milk was the milk that you wanted. And so what that meant is that you had wet nurses who had just given birth to babies. And so often just because the wet nurse needed the money They needed that money to survive. Their own child ended up getting very little milk. Wet nursing also had a big unintended consequence, um, which is that it, it resulted in more babies being born. Why was that? So women who routinely sent out their babies to wet nurses would often wind up giving birth almost every year. And the reason is pretty simple. It's because they weren't lactating. And lactating, you know, it suppresses ovulation. And so you have this situation in which not just wealthy women, but even working women in Paris in 1780 who sent their baby out to the countryside because they couldn't afford to take a break from their job, those women then get pregnant shortly afterwards as well. It's this tremendously ironic situation. People throughout history have also nursed babies using livestock. Um, what are some of the animals that, that people have tried? This is one of the most bizarre and most charming bits of child-rearing history that I came upon in my research, um, which is that there was this fad. And to call it a fad is really unfair because it wasn't a bad idea. There was a fad for having goats nurse babies. Um, the idea was that you didn't have to worry about contaminated water um, or contaminated milk. If the child fed directly from the goats, it was actually somewhat counterintuitively less likely to catch the sort of illness that might doom it if it was drinking water that was polluted. So they're drinking straight from the goat. They're like nursing from the goat. They're nursing from the goats. So there were actually special wooden cradles that were designed to slide underneath the goats so that the baby could suck from the goat directly. 
And there's accounts of how the goats got to know the cries of their babies, the babies they were responsible for. And so when the baby cried out, the goat would recognize it and go to nurse the baby. That's amazing. When we come back, Nick gets to the bottom of his pacifier phobia, plus the beautiful, horrifying consequences of touching your baby. (laughs) Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you lobster mom for weeks afterward what we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos lobster mom life's a trip make the most of it at best western with over 4200 hotels worldwide start clean with clorox because clorox delivers a powerful clean Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. We are back with Nicholas Day, author of the book, Baby Meets World. Now, one of the touchiest parenting issues over the last century has actually been, well, touch. There have been huge pendulum swings over the years in how we've thought about holding our children, a lot of them stemming from what was thought to be the latest scientific information. But Nick writes that often these pendulum swings had as much to do with the cultural moment people were in and the way that they were already thinking about their world as they did with the science itself. I had Nick read one example from 1928. This comes from the behaviorist John Watson. Never hug and kiss them. Never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. Give them a pat on the head if they have made an extraordinarily good job of a difficult task. Where did doctors get this idea that we shouldn't touch kids? In the Victorian era, we have this idea about the Victorian era, which is somewhat um, inapt. Um, in fact, child rearing in the Victorian era was 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 pretty sentimental and loosey goosey, and it's shortly after the Victorians when this sort of new pseudoscientific era dawns, that all of a sudden people become very rigorous about children. And that rigor applies to touching your children. And partly that's about early germ theory. Um, Partly people are terrified of whatever it is that babies are dying from. But as much of it is about raising children in a very precise way so that the children the future of the children um, is something that's calibrated, something that can be manufactured. 
So this like very formal uh, relationship with your baby or your child is, is like the idea that um, that you'll spoil them with too much touch. Yeah, that's a lot of the idea um, is that uh, you need to only be involved with your child to the extent that you can control your child. And emotion is not really something that can be controlled. These days, most parenting classes will tell you to swaddle your baby often. You know, um, there are lines of like fancy swaddling blankets now. It's a whole thing. And, and there's like different kinds of swaddling techniques. I remember like my husband really like being thrilled with himself by, by like really uh, nailing down his swaddling technique. Swaddling isn't new, but, but it also hasn't always been embraced. Um, so, so tell me about the history of swaddling. Swaddling is one of those child-rearing practices that is truly ancient. Um, it goes back, you know, as far as the Bible. Jesus was swaddled. Jesus was swaddled. Swaddling is something that is common, not just in ancient times, but in the Middle Ages, throughout the Renaissance. What are, what are the benefits of, of swaddling a baby? Why, why would you want to swaddle your baby, which is basically like uh, wrapping a blanket around them to keep them tight? Why, why would you want to do that? One of the reasons is that it basically restricts the startle reflex and the baby is sort of unable to wake itself up and unable to freak itself out. And that's a lot of it. Um, it protects babies. It keeps them warm. Um, it makes them easier to look after. And back when you have livestock wandering through the house, back when you have fires, you know, in the open hearth, swaddling is one of the few ways that mothers have of keeping their babies safe. Mm -hmm. um, so parents basically swaddle their children in part because it makes them easier to deal with, but in part because it protects them from what was a pretty chaotic place. Right. And and then there was a there was a big backlash to swaddling. Tell me about the swaddling backlash. The reason swaddling is popular is because it makes an infant easier to manage. And all of a sudden, people decide that that's the problem with swaddling. The problem with swaddling is that infants are bound up and they're being taught all the wrong lessons about life. And so you have political philosophers who decide that swaddling, of all things, is at the root of social problems. Um, you have John Locke, you have Rousseau, who are now arguing very vehemently against swaddling. Um, Rousseau says things like, the infant is bound up in swaddling clothes. The corpse is nailed down in his coffin. All his life long, man is imprisoned by our institutions. That's like heavy. That's heavy for a baby. That's heavy. Um, and Rousseau, as he did about so many other things, you know, got carried away. Later on in that, he writes, Have we not yet decided to swaddle our kittens and puppies? Are there any the worse for this neglect? <laughs> Um, and, and Rousseau also, I mean, swaddling is swaddling keeps a baby warm. Rousseau was even against keeping babies warm in general. Right. Well, you see this again and again, like people have been doing one thing and then they flee from it and start doing whatever the thing that's as far from that original thing. Swaddling kept babies warm. So now babies must be kept cold. So you have Rousseau advocating that you give babies 
baths in which you steadily lower the temperature until, quote, at last you bathe them winter and summer in cold, even ice cold water. Perfect. Perfect parenting manual. <laughs> Put your baby in ice water. <laughs> um, yes, it's, it's, yes. Incidentally, Rousseau didn't ever raise children. He, he abandoned five of them to orphanages. Right. Despite being one of the key people to argue against wet nursing and to argue that breastfeeding was what was going to restore the natural order of things and create a truly healthy functioning society. Rousseau abandoned pretty much all of his children. This is the funny thing about parenting fads. You get people putting all this stock in some philosopher dude who abandoned his own children but then later, you can have an obstetrician with actual helpful information whose ideas don't get any attention at all. One of the most life-saving inventions for babies, particularly for preemies, um, has been the incubator. Um, and that has a really fascinating past. Uh, can you talk about how the incubator was invented? Yeah, so the first incubator comes around when a French obstetrician visits the Paris Zoo in 1878 and he sees that the baby chicks are being raised in this um, contraption which keeps them warm and sheltered and he's intrigued by it and he thinks maybe it would work for premature babies and so he asks the zoo's director to build him a version of it for human infants so the very first incubator actually comes direct from the Paris Zoo. Wow. Um, and then, and then, what happened? How how did the incubator catch on? Well, even after then, people are very reluctant um, to think that the incubator could possibly work. Maybe because it has this bizarre history. Maybe because it was used, you know, in a zoo originally. And so you actually have this German doctor who takes an incubator out on tour, showing Americans that premature babies have a chance of survival, which then wasn't taken for granted at all. And so he goes around the country and actually borrows premature babies from hospitals and he puts them in this incubator and he displays them at fairs. And it's a very popular It's like attraction. the living baby exhibit. Yes, exactly. It's right next to the bearded lady. <laughs> they had it they had it at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933. It was it, it was it was the second most popular exhibit. You wrote that, that the first most popular was a burlesque dancer with ostrich feather fans. Number two, yeah, living yeah, baby exhibit. Right. This is a theme that comes up in Nick's book over and over. Even if the science behind an idea is good, it might not catch on until the culture is receptive to it. And this works the opposite way, too. Sometimes the science is terrible, but if it taps into an anxiety that people are already feeling— it can spread like wildfire and have surprising staying power. Anyone who's been around a little baby knows that they suck on everything. Um, and and lots of them suck on their thumbs. And there's been a lot of societal angst over thumb sucking. And you traced this angst all the way back to a Hungarian pediatrician um, named Dr. Lindner. Yeah, so thumb sucking is one of these things that People don't seem to really notice. It seems to be this benign thing that a baby does. And then when Lindner comes along, all of a sudden, in the decades after that, hysteria erupts. And it's because Lindner 
has written this paper in which he observes 69 children and four of them are said to, he says, suck their thumbs and touch their genitals. He called it pleasure sucking. Um, who knew what he was seeing, but he was horrified. And you have this, this wondrous way in which these four children are laundered in a way by repeated reference in early pediatric papers and in textbooks into unimpeachable evidence that thumb sucking will turn your children into chronic masturbators. I'd like to have you read um, a passage from your book, and this is actually not something you wrote, it's something you quoted from. Um, It was a column from Good Housekeeping that was written in 1908. Sure, yeah. I watched a young mother the other day sowing seeds of trouble, mortification, exasperation, war nerves for herself, pain, rebelliousness, possibly permanent disfigurement for her child. It filled my soul with wrath. What was she doing? Encouraging a habit, cute, she called it, but one which she will someday know for what it is, pernicious to the last degree. This is the thumb-sucking habit. I have heard all the arguments of doting parents. It is such a comfort to him. It keeps him so quiet and happy. It would be cruel to deprive him of so harmless a pastime. He'll drop it by and by. Every time I am tempted to cry aloud, fools, 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 you know not what you do. So, wow. That's, uh, so, uh, parental judging, nothing new. I mean, can you imagine what you would do if your pediatrician you know, with a completely straight face, told you that your child would spend the rest of his life as a, you know, an immoral, compulsively masturbating individual, and there was no hope for him unless you stopped this habit. Which, first of all, I should just say, like, it's totally, totally normal for babies to touch their genitals. (laughs) They all do it. Right, right. And what's amazing is that, like, it's not like it's a new thing that babies were doing. Right. And so all of a sudden the culture is ripe at that particular moment to be turned upside down by this observation. What are some of the things that parents would do to keep their kids from sucking their thumbs? Children would wake up and they would discover that the sleeves of their nightgowns had been pinned to the bed in order to prevent them from bringing their thumbs to their mouths. Parents would make or buy these stiff right-angled braces that would go around the baby's elbow to actually physically prevent them from being able to bend their thumb into their mouth. There were gloves, mitts that were sewn on to the end of their clothing. Um, And there are all sorts of other crazy inventions too. And these were not you know, this was mainstream. This These were not aberrations. These were not crazy parents. This was completely normal behavior. Um, around the same time, in 1914, a U.S. government agency that had just been founded starts distributing a a pamphlet called Infant Care, which is supposed to disseminate, you know, the new scientific information about child rearing. And this is that sort of new scientific information. Um, And in Infant Care, they actually give instructions for making these devices. Okay, so here's where we get to the pacifier thing. Around the same time that people were freaking out about thumb sucking, Nick found, some people were also going nuts over pacifiers. 
sucking on stuff already seemed kind of dirty, and pacifiers made it even dirtier, like literally. They were always falling on the ground, which back then was often covered in horse poop. Early pacifiers were also dipped in sugar water or honey, which Nick says is probably the original source of the panic over pacifiers ruining babies' teeth. Later, there were concerns over pacifiers throwing kids' palates and speech out of whack. Finally, pacifiers seemed to a lot of people like a sign of a lazy parent. They were a shortcut to get your kid to shut up. There's actually very little evidence that pacifiers caused any of these problems, but that was part of why people decided that only parents who were truly reckless, only parents who had no interest in their child's well-being would give them a pacifier. Um, and I think that that feeling, that feeling that a parent who gives a child a pacifier is a parent who doesn't care, that feeling is echoed throughout the century. And you can still kind of feel reverberations of that. Today, even though pacifiers have been uh, found innocent um, of pretty much every charge. Now that you know that that your fear was rooted in a piece of misguided history, how do you feel about it? Knowing that there's this whole history um, of people being upset um, about pacifiers for these very generally very silly reasons. I don't know. I feel resentful. I feel like um, I'm a victim, like so many parents are, of a conversation that I had no idea was going on. Is it freeing at all to think like, this isn't actually my own anxiety. This is an anxiety going like decades past and sometimes centuries past. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it feels great to have someone to blame it on. In a minute, we find out how one man single-handedly invented the idea of a normal baby. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. We are back with author Nicholas Day. 
You you write in your book about this thing that happens often at the playground between parents, uh, and I totally related to this. Um, so, like when when my daughter was little, we would go to the playground, and another parent, without fail, like they, you know, they'd see her like crawling around on the ground or something, and they'd be like, "When did she start doing that? You know, is she uh, you know trying to start standing yet? Has she is she able to like?" stack things, you know, like, um, there's so much, I know, I know it's not, it's not always coming from a competitive place, but it feels competitive and it would drive me crazy. Um, and I wonder like, where does this idea of milestones even come from? So milestones start really in the early 20th century with a man named Arnold Gassell, who's working at Yale. Um, and he decides to film every movement that a baby does um, and to basically write enormous volumes documenting and analyzing. So basically, Gassel looks at infants and he comes up with, even though he has countless deviations in his observations, he derives and fudges a time in which most infants crawl, most infants walk. He picks a fairly arbitrary set of activities that babies should be doing, and he comes up with the time at which they should be doing them. He, it's, it gets ridiculously specific. You write in your book that he um, says the 40-week-old, quote, lunches at about 1.30 on spoon-fed vegetables. The 18-month-old, quote, wakes up cheery from his nap. Right, right. Of course. I mean, don't all 18-month-olds do that? I mean, I think, I think we all do that. <laughs> Always. Yeah, I think part of what he was trying to do was to relieve parents from the obligation to shape their babies. He's reacting to behavioralism. What he's trying to tell parents is that the babies will do things regardless of what you do. And so he's starting from a good place. But I think in the process, he ends up making parents extremely anxious because at the playground, you know, almost 100 years later, you have conversations in which everyone is a little nervous that their baby isn't doing the right thing at the right time. What was going on during Gasell's time that made measurement really important? So Gasell is very much a product of his time. He's a product of measurement. He's a product of rigorous schedules, the railroad the telegraph, all of these things which lay down the law about when things should be happening. It was the turn of the century. The, 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 the country was, was being divided into time zones. Right. And so it's only natural that that same feeling bleeds into how we think about children. Now, this idea of milestones, it's not totally wrong. The CDC has a good list of benchmarks that you can expect your kid to hit over their first five years which can help you keep an eye out for developmental issues. But when it comes to normal development, there is a huge range of normal. Like some babies at four months can sit upright before they've even rolled over. Some kids walk before they crawl. And this stuff varies from culture to culture too. So measurement, cold, hard numbers, this is what was important in the first half of the 20th century. But Nick writes that around the 1950s, scientists began to measure something entirely different. They were measuring warm, fuzzy feelings. A couple of iconic studies demonstrated the importance of comfort and physical contact to baby animals. And that transformed the way that we thought about our own newborns, too. 
So you write that up until the 1970s, preemies were kept in neonatal wards and the parents could only see them behind glass. And that all changed with kangaroo care. Kangaroo care is now like, uh, we also call it skin to skin, and it has all kinds of proven benefits. Um, So how did that start? Um, So kangaroo care starts in the 1970s in Bogota. And Bogota has a ton of premature babies. Um, Most of the premature babies that are born in the world are born in places that are not equipped to deal with them. And so you have this hospital, which is very poor, but is flooded with premature babies. And many of these babies are dying. I think at that point, there is a mortality rate of something astonishing, something like 70%. And so there's a doctor there who's desperate, who decides, and he's inspired by kangaroos, which is why it's called kangaroo care. He decides that he basically wants to try to put the baby back into the womb to try to keep it alive a little bit longer. And the way he does this is by, you know, stripping the baby naked basically and putting it against the mother's bare chest and wrapping the baby in. After kangaroo care was introduced, the mortality rate in the neonatal ICU at this hospital in Bogota plummeted to just 30%. Kangaroo care has since spread around the world. In developing countries, it gives preemies a better chance of survival. But even in countries with plenty of incubators, there's evidence that skin-to-skin helps babies psychologically, makes them less agitated, more socially alert, and helps their parents feel more tuned in and, and responsive to them. And what's nuts is that all of this came just a few decades after the days when moms were told not to touch their babies at all. Now at this point, you gotta know what's coming next. Because of course, as touch became more trendy, people started to give it a little too much power. This starts in the 70s. You have a number of ethnographic parenting stories that offer a way out of this sterile, isolated way in which we're bringing up children. And as often happens in the history of parenting, um, it's a reaction to something that was pretty lousy and needed to be changed. And maybe because of that, it's an overreaction. So in 1975, you have a woman named Jean Lidloff who goes down to the Amazon and lives with an isolated tribe down there. And she comes back and she publishes a book called The Continuum Concept, which is still a very popular book today. Um, It's become this kind of founding text of the attachment parenting movement. Um, And she wants mothers to parent their children like the mothers that she saw in the Amazon, which is to say that she thinks they should be in contact with their baby all the time, constant contact. The mother should pretty much never put down the child, at least for the first six months. And Lidloff tells readers that if the mother does put down the child, and it's always a mother, um, that basically tragic consequences will result. And and there are still today there there are I hear people talking about attachment parenting. It's still it's still a thing. Sure, it's still a very big thing. Um, but when you actually sit down and read the continuum concept now, it is kind of amazing to read her prose. Um, she says that you know taking care of a baby is a non-activity. Um, she says that we should learn to regard taking care of a baby as quote nothing to do because it's just something that you do in your everyday life. 
Yeah, you just have the baby attached to you all the time and <laughs> just go about your life. Exactly. And that's what you, when you read about the continuum concept, that's what you realize is missing. You have a poor, lonely mother in America trying to recreate a system of taking care of children in the Amazon in which the rest of the culture work to support her. And in America, none of the culture works to support that way of raising a child. And so we end up being continually disappointed because no parent is a culture. As much as we'd like to think the experience of parenting should be universal, Nick says it's just not. How we think about our babies and ourselves is, is completely tied up in the time and place that we're living, which of course makes you wonder, how is our time and place affecting the way that we parent? Nick says that anxiety we feel about how many choices we have, that's probably a big part of it. How do we choose what is the way we want to parent? And that's a real problem. On the other hand, it's reflective of everything else about our life now. Like we're drowning in information generally, right? We suffer from the too many yogurt brands and the yogurt case problem, right? Like we could stand in front of the fridge and just stare at it. I mean, like aside from, you know, Beyonce and like, you know, artisanal donuts, right? Like that's what marks our cultural moment. Um, and so it's not a surprise that parenting is subject to the same anxieties. Of course, all this anxiety is probably going to make us all look really silly in a couple decades. Nick writes about this too. I have tried not to mock the past. This has been hard because the past sometimes seems like it is begging for it. Tickling is bad for children, the educator Angelo Patri wrote in 1922. Sometimes it does serious harm, and it never does any good. There's no easier target than how people used to take care of children. The parents of the past are beyond empathy. But I will soon be a parent of the past, and I will look preposterous too. We all will. It's good to remember. So do you think it will ever be possible to parent in a way that won't look preposterous? No. <laughs> I think we're trapped. We're trapped by our time and place. We're trapped by our culture. We can't see how we look. We'll never be able to see how we look. You have two kids, and your second baby was born just after finishing this book. Um, how has it been different the second time around? Are you less worried about screwing him up? I'm way less worried about screwing him up. I feel much more comfortable with the weirdness, with the kind of bizarre majesty of infancy. I feel like it, it does a nice job of putting a parent, at least putting me in my place, like pointing out that really, like I'm somewhere off to the side here, you know? I'm not actually the star of this show. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Are there times that anxieties creep up on you and you're like, oh yeah, that goes back to that weird thing in France? Right, right. Well, the problem is, and the way I really screwed myself over, is that the research I did into children stops right about when they're starting to talk. And now my children are talking all the time and they're into a whole nother part of childhood that I know very little about. Um, and so I'm helpless now 
I'm as trapped as 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 anyone else. Time for the next book. Yeah, exactly. You guys, we want to know about your parenting quirks. Were there any superstitions or suspect studies or well-meaning advice that made you anxious as a new parent? And more importantly, what helped you to calm down? Go to longestshortesttime.com and tell us in the comments for this episode. That's episode 123. This episode was produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Kristen Clark and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rekha Murthy. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time. I think I misused those phrases and I I have one my grandfather used to say, gay cock and off and yam, which I think means go shit in the ocean. We'll be talking culture and family with the hosts of Mashup Americans. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And be sure to rate and review us. This helps new people to find our show. So please, please, please go do it now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. We've been getting some hilarious stories from you guys about the texts that your parents have sent you. We are also looking for some more serious ones. Like, did you ever have an entire fight over text? Did it get resolved? We'd especially love to find something like that. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.